Hi, this is Pastor Ryan Spooner. I'm so glad that you're listening to our sermon podcast. I hope it's a blessing. If you live in the area, or even if you don't, we would love to have you join us on a Sunday morning. We meet at 10.30 a.m. at the Millworks in Willington, Connecticut, 156 River Road. Also, if you'd ever like to help support our church financially, we would be extremely grateful. You can donate through our website, stpaulschurchct.org. Thanks. Amen. You guys can be seated. So, as Keith was saying, this is very special Sunday. This is our annual Thanksgiving Sunday. And we have uh, four of our, uh, our very own who are going to be sharing stories about how God has worked in their lives. Um, so before we get into that, uh, let's, let's pray for them. Lord, uh, we thank you so much for this morning, and we thank you for the willingness uh, that these four have to um, be vulnerable and share about what you've done in their lives. And I pray, Lord, that you would calm any nerves that they might have right now, um, that you would remind them that they are among friends. And um, I pray, Lord, that you would give them confidence in knowing that you have given them a story to tell. And I pray that you would help each one of us here to be ready to receive what it is that they have to share. Um, give us uh, ears to hear and hearts that are willing to be changed um, by anything that they are saying that is from your spirit, Lord. Uh, so we just uh, give our attention to you now and to those that you have um, called to share today. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, so uh, may I remind those who are sharing to hold the microphone close to your face and speak clearly because we really want to hear what you have to say. Um, so I'd like to invite Betty up first. Um, can I think you might need to hold this. Is that, does, does she need to hold this one, Caleb? Right, yeah. Yeah. All right. You know what? We, uh, we changed microphone holders this morning because one was broken, and this is the one for the handheld mic, which otherwise it wouldn't have fit. So thank you, because I don't want you to see me going like this. You know, it's pretty nerve-wracking being up here not singing, so... Uh, I'm just just glad to be able to share. Ryan asked me last year, and I kind of didn't want to do it then. So you can't say tw no twice to the pastor, right? Not a good thing. So um, we're going to talk today about things that God has done in our lives. There's so many things that God has done uh, for me, protected me, protected my family, saved me. Um, you know, being an older person, I look back, and when I was younger, there were so many times that he did things for me before I came to believe and in retrospect you know you think about it and say wow you know he was there all the time even when I wasn't acknowledging it but today um, what I wanted to speak about um, was that God brought me through the toughest times and I could have taken a much more destructive and even tragic course the reason I say that is because I was an alcoholic and uh, for many years um, I you know people get addicted to alcohol for many reasons um, I believe mine was related to a couple of things. 
Uh, and one was trauma from sexual abuse and sexual assault when I was a young woman. Um, but I also have a pretty bad anxiety disorder, which counts for the microphone, and, uh, and a family history of alcoholism. So if anybody wants to tell you that there isn't a genetic predisposition, I really would have to disagree with that. Um, there are many alcoholics on both my sides of the family, and uh, so I kind of was, you know, got through the A's and the B's, you know, the alcoholism, and then uh, I didn't, and anxiety, so I kind of got those two in the beginning of the alphabet. But whatever that reason, my addiction to alcohol resulted in years of behavior that caused not only myself, but also people that I love a lot of distress and heartache. And I thank God for allowing me not to forget what I did, but also to forgive myself. That's a big part of it. So I'm going to start right where I started drinking, tell you a little bit, and then how God delivered me. Um, recognizing that I had a drinking problem came slowly because drinking was just part of my lifestyle as a young person. You know, we all went out and partied together. I drank, I did smoke some pot, and, um, you know, that's what we did when we hung out. We just drank and partied, and um, for some people, they can do that socially and never becomes a problem, but for somebody who's an alcoholic, it becomes how they live and eventually how they cope with things. So I started drinking in high school. Was legal then, you know, I was 18. Um, and, uh, well, maybe a little bit before it was legal, but, you know. Um, but that was, uh, I continued when I went on to college, and I stopped going to school. I got a job as a nurse's aide, and uh, I actually, God placed me in uh, work situations where I was always helping people, which was a big part of why I think I did okay, even though through those years I was drinking, because I had something to focus on, I had other people to focus on. I always worked, I was get, I guess I was a functional alcoholic. Um, but anyway, in the hospital I made a lot of friends and I started a relationship with a man uh, that I got engaged to, and I was 18 then, 19 I think. Um, but he was also an alcoholic, so it was a very toxic relationship. Um, and we kind of fed into each other's addictions. Um, then, fortunately, some friends of mine recognized that I had an issue here, and they wanted to help me get out of that relationship. So they encouraged me to come stay with them until I could get my own place. And not very long after that, uh, my ex-fiance was killed in a car accident. Um, he lost control of his car. He hit a boulder going 100 miles an hour. And um, I'm sure that his drinking played a part in that. So um, it's kind of good that I got out of that relationship. I continued to work at the hospital and worked part-time at a restaurant. That's where I met my husband. Some of you know him. Um, and we got married in 1984. At this point, I had been drinking for pretty steadily for like 11 years. So you can count it all up. She's old. Um, I also experimented with other drugs, but fortunately that um, didn't have the hold on me that alcohol did. So when I found out I was pregnant with my first daughter, I was able to stop drinking during that time, um, which was good. And, um, but right after she was born, I was no longer breastfeeding. I started drinking again. Um, but I started to realize at that point how it was affecting me because I had another person I was responsible for then, right? And I felt totally out of control. I started blacking out when I was drinking. Um, sometimes I could have three drinks and I would be okay. And then other times I could have three drinks and not remember what I did. So I always had 
only drank when I knew somebody would be there. So that would make everything okay. Wasn't okay, but in my head it was. But fortunately, God gave me enough presence of mind to never drink alone, never drink when I was with my children. So I just thank him for that. Um, I also felt very spiritually lost. So I decided to start looking for a church. I was raised Catholic and went to the church, was in the church for a long time as a younger person. I went to all-girls Catholic high school, which can kind of ruin you wanting to continue <laughs> going on. So when I went away to college, I got away from going to church. So at this point, I decided I just really needed to find God again. So um, I visited several places and went around in the area. And then one morning I got up and decided I would go to Wellington Hill Church. And I got there and it was closed for the summer and they meet down here. So I came down here and I was too late for that service. So I decided I would go to Ashford to St. Philip's and I was too early. So I felt like Goldilocks, right? I was like, oh, where am I supposed to go? And I pulled out. And there was a little tiny sign that said Warrenville Baptist, and they that was just right for me. It turned out to be a really great uh, church for me, and I ended up staying there for quite a few years. I met my friend Pamela there, and we've been friends ever since. That's where we met. Um, so I became a regular attendee at Warrenville, and as God often works through others, the pastor there was a recovering alcoholic. And... Um, I made an appointment to talk to him. Now, I had never, never talked to him about my um, alcoholism. And I made an appointment. I walked in, and he smiled, and he said, have a seat. I've been waiting for you. And I said, oh. And he says, you have a problem with drinking, don't you? And I said, yes, I do. And so he began to help me. And it was, uh, it was amazing how God started to put people in my life who would tell me their stories that I never knew. It was a woman I worked with who's just really classy lady, would never think. When I came in one morning to work, and I was really, really hungover, and she said, you okay? I said, no, I'm, I'm really struggling. She says, well, you know what? I'm an alcoholic, Betty. And I said, what? And she said, yeah. She says, I've been sober for 10 years. She said, so let me help you with some things. So she gave me some materials to read, and one of them was from this man um, who had been sober for 10 years also, and I thought, wow. That's such a long time, I'll never be able to do that. But I just kept trying. So over the next year and a half, I was able to stop drinking for periods of time, um, including my second pregnancy with my younger daughter. And then after I had her, I started drinking again. She was born in 1987. Um, and then on Christmas Eve of 1987, I had a horrible, horrible experience drinking. I don't want to go into details because it's, pretty painful for me, but <clears throat> I realized that if I had stopped drinking that I would lose my family. That would be the end of my marriage and I wouldn't be with my children anymore. So that day I started praying on my knees. And um, sorry. Every night on my knees and I just asked, please, please help me. So on January 16th, 1988, God delivered me from alcohol, and I haven't had a drink since then. So that's been over 35 years for me. And that, uh, thank you. Thank you. You know, that's uh, when you quit. 
It seems like such a long time now, which is why I can talk about it now, you know, but still, as you can see, it's still very, you know, r real painful. But quitting alcohol, though, isn't, you know, at, at, that isn't the end, right? Then you got to start dealing with why you drank and what it's done to your body and what it's done to your mind. Um, and as I said, I was very blessed to be able to work with people, and that was just been such a wonderful thing for me be able to give back after what God's done for me. I work with people with <coughs> intellectual disabilities for over 40 years. I was retired a couple years ago, but um, I have the most wonderful husband and I have two amazing daughters. We're still together. Um, and God led me first to that one church and then he led me to St. Paul's when we were still over in um, stores. And I'm just so fortunate to be part of this congregation and this amazing worship team behind me so um i wrote in here being up today here without them was really different but it's not because they're here yay <laughs> so i'm happy um i was really apprehensive not that i have so much trouble speaking in public but you know to be vulnerable so i thank ryan for his for his prayer um but i really i used to talk about alcoholism but i didn't talk that much in detail um, but i'm hoping that sharing this would be helpful to someone who's struggling with alcohol or substance abuse. Um, say this to you, if you are struggling, pray, ask for help, God will help you. I stand here today proof of his mercy and his love. Thanks. Thank you so much, Betty. That was awesome. So next, uh, we're going to draw from the worship team again. <laughs> uh, it's okay. I'd like to invite up Andrea Redfern. Okay, this is going to be a study in contrast, and I am not okay with speaking in public. So apologies, but I'm going to read this. Uh, with the psalmist, I say, I trust in your unfailing love, and my heart rejoices in your salvation. I will sing to the Lord, for he has been good to me. Psalm 16, uh, 13, 5 and 6. From birth I was cast upon you. From my mother's womb you have been my God. Psalm 22, 9 and 10. For you have been my hope, O sovereign Lord, my confidence since my youth. Psalm 17, 5. When Ryan asked me if I would be willing to share this morning, I thought, well, what do I have to say? I was born to Christian parents and grew up in the Wesleyan Methodist Church. We were there pretty much any time the doors were open. Always, always Wednesday night Bible study, prayer meeting, and twice on Sunday. I cannot recall a time when I was not in relationship with God. From my earliest memories, there was a connection between us. I knew him to be there somehow, and the world was full of wonder. The end. However, as I reflected on my life, although I don't have a dramatic conversion story, I do have a testimony. A testimony of the love and faithfulness of the Lord. A testimony of the more literal translation of Psalm 23, 6. Surely goodness and love will pursue and overtake me all the days of my life. I have always been drawn to the word. When I was 10, I started memorizing Psalms just because I wanted to. No one told me to, and it wasn't that there was a Bible memorization program going on at the church. So it seemed like a pretty good life. 
You who fear the Lord, praise him, for he has not despised or disdained the suffering of the afflicted one. He has not hidden his face from him. Psalm 22, 23-24. Around the age of 11, things started to change for me. Public school and riding the bus became one long nightmare. That continued for years. At the same time, I had matured enough to start hearing and grasping more of what the church declared to be of primary importance regarding faith and what it should look like for every believer. The most important people in my life fully agreed. I was by nature a shy, quiet person. I loved being alone. The message that I heard and which was driven deep into me in many ways with many words at every turn was that in order to be pleasing to God, I had in essence to be an extrovert. It was all about witnessing for Jesus everywhere with everybody you met. The ones God really loved were the evangelists and the missionaries. Life was not about self, ever. Life was to be about others and bringing them into the kingdom. Wanting to be alone was the ultimate in selfishness. In other words, the message was, be someone you are not. The language used was full of words like duty, obligation, have to, must, and, parentheses, constant, and parentheses, service. I struggled under the massive weight of these things. I came to the conclusion, both on a conscious level and an unconscious one, that I was fundamentally, irreparably flawed at the very core of my being. My very personhood, my wiring, my inner bent was not of a kind that God could love. He might state that he did, but obviously he could not really. I did not fit the parameters and requirements. Scripture seemed to bear out the parameters and requirements. He could not love a shameful, cowardly introvert. I rejected myself and hated everything about myself, inside, outside, up, down. Deep fear and anxiety entered and ruled my life on levels I'm only now beginning to understand and work through. All my longings lie open before you, O Lord. My sighing is not hidden from you. Psalm 38, 9. Though he slay me, yet will I love him. Job 13, 15. In October 1985, chronic fatigue syndrome brought my life as I knew it to a crashing halt. The fatigue was so intense I could not function. Prayers for my healing immediately started rising to the throne on the part of many, many people. However, after five months with no change for the better, I had to pack up and move back in with my parents. If prayers are kept in bowls before the altar in heaven, I figured that there must have been at least a couple of 55-gallon drums worth of prayers, and yet, nothing. I clung to him in his word. Scripture became a lifeline for me like never before even in the midst of my confusion, and why, Lord, why? I heard his voice. He asked if I could, if I would, be willing to leave the mystery and the puzzle piece with him. Yes, Lord. I thought the medical community would offer me a quick fix. It could not. Nothing was known about chronic fatigue syndrome in February of 1986. In 1995, fibromyalgia got added to the mix. Now to him who is able to do immeasurably more more than all we ask or imagine, according to his power that is at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Ephesians 3, 20 and 21. Physical healing was very gradual. In fact, I am still affected by 
both chronic fatigue and fibromyalgia. But even with the fatigue and other things that go with it, the years have been very rich ones. I met Chuck at Gordon-Conwell Theological Seminary and we married. We were blessed with a gift, a treasure far, far beyond words, a son, Caleb. To this day, he remains a gift and a treasure far, far beyond words. At one point before Caleb was born, I went through the New Testament to see where joy and suffering were mentioned. I was shocked to find how very frequently they were listed together in a verse or in a thought. A continual running concurrently of joy and sorrow. Yes, that is the description of life here. Somewhere in there, God dropped a thought into my mind, into my spirit. I came to understand that God had indeed heard the pleas and cries of myself and many others for my healing. However, he wanted, he had in mind, a healing on a scale I never imagined. He didn't want just a physical healing for me. He wanted a whole person healing. He knew that if he immediately answered our prayers for mere physical healing, I would have flown back into my life as I had always known it. A life I hated, but that I thought was his will for me, quote-unquote. A life of nose to the grindstone, never look up, never dream, never relax, barely sleep. I knew he was right. I would not have listened had I not been forced into it, as it were. The Lord will fulfill his purpose for me. Your love, O Lord, endures forever. Psalm 138.8 I, the Lord, will restore to you the years the locusts have eaten. Joel 2.25 In 1996, we moved from Boston, Massachusetts, where Chuck had been pastoring, to a tiny little town in New Hampshire to be involved in a church in a nearby, slightly larger tiny little town. And there I met the Holy Spirit, the third person of the Trinity. Godhead between the dialogue between the Godhead and myself grew into an everyday, all-day conversation, an answer to a prayer that I had had since I was a teenager, to hear his voice. Jesus stated in John 10 twice that his sheep would hear his voice, would listen to him, would know his voice. And we started talking. Very often he would start the conversations. The Lord confides in those who fear him. He makes his covenant known to them. My eyes are ever on the Lord, for only he will release my feet from the snare. Psalm 25, 14 and 15. What a stunning statement. Mind-boggling truth. The Lord himself confides. Yes, chooses to confide in us and let us in on his thoughts and his counsels. Everything that happens in our lives, the good, the bad, the ugly, is an invitation to come to him and be in conversation with him. And the process began in earnest to undo all of the lies, the misconceptions and erring perceptions that I came away with from my childhood. To begin to learn what I have come that they may have life and have it to the full means. John 10.10 Like when I was a child, it was in many ways, with many words, at every turn, and with and through many people, as well as through his conversations with me that I slowly changed. One small example would be the following. Not after we, long after we moved to uh, New Hampshire, the refrain from a particular chorus grabbed my attention. You know who I am and you love who I am because you made who I am. For, for some reason, that really struck me. Wait, 
He made you as an introvert, as needing a lot of time alone, as a lover of beauty and music and art, on purpose. It's not like you were born and he gasped and exclaimed, what have I done? Well, that was a huge mistake, and now what am I going to do? He had done it on purpose. The Lord's language, the Lord's language, is not full of must, have to, duty, and obligation. He is always and ever, his is always and ever, a language of invitation. It is a language of a lover lovesick for his beloved. As a late friend of mine wrote in lyrics of a song he composed, you, Jesus, said to your father, I would rather die than live without them. I am in a new season, a season of dreams and discoveries. I know that I know that I know that I am accepted and loved by my heavenly father and by his son and by their spirit. I am coming to accept who I am, to explore who I am, to like who I am, and the world is full of wonder. The further I go on in the process, the more profoundly grateful I am for his unwearied, patient pursuit of me. For the better part of my life, I have pitted lies against his truth and given them more weight than the word of God itself. I considered lies as truth and truth as lie. I have cried out for this, that, and the other on the one hand, and by mindsets and misguided beliefs, often on an unconscious level, I have totally hampered his answering on the other hand. And yet he keeps on. Oh, how much higher his thoughts are than ours and his ways than ours, Isaiah 55, 9. And I bow in worship. I delight greatly in the Lord. My soul rejoices in my God, for he has clothed me with garments of salvation and arrayed me in a robe of righteousness as a bridegroom adorns his head like a priest and a bride adorns herself with her jewels, Isaiah 61, 10. I am my beloved's and he is mine. I close with this verse. To him who is able to keep you from falling and to present you before his glorious presence without fault and with great joy. To the only God our Savior be glory, majesty, power, and authority through Jesus Christ our Lord before all ages, now and forevermore. Amen. Jude 24 and 25. Thank you, Andrea. Why don't we uh, all stand together and uh, just respond to those testimonies in worship. So next up, I'd like to invite Josh Corot. See if I can get this microphone right. <laughs> Maybe. I don't know. I'm terrible at holding microphones, by the way. Sorry. But, um, nice. All right. <laughs> so I'm going to be a little bit on uh, notes and also a little bit just going off of the top of my head. Uh, but I figured I'd share this. This happened, would have been 2022, uh, late 2022, towards Christmas time, because the only reason I really remember is just before Christmas is you got the Christmas music on the radio. Love jamming to that this time of year. Um, <clears throat> at the time, uh, I was four years documenting experience being a diesel mechanic, and uh at the time, too, I was struggling heavy with anxiety. I had been for the past 13 years. Um, anxiety disorder was very difficult, still is to this day, but uh, you'll see as I go on, it seems to, this, this is a good side of the story. Um, <laughs> so my shop sent me out from, would be 
old Lyme, old Saybrook area, and sent me out to Johnson, Rhode Island to this this diesel van we had that just was giving us trouble left and right. Everything we tried to do to kind of help fix it, it just didn't work. It just became this whole headache. And I remember I was basically just being sent there <coughs> on my own, trying to figure it out, uh, see what's going on with it. Everything we'd do to try to fix it just wouldn't seem to work. And after multiple attempts, we were, it was starting to become more frustrating and everyone was just frustrated with the situation. Um, <coughs> there was something internally going wrong uh, with this engine. So you'd have, you know, your engine oils kind of just vaporing out the tailpipe as if like this engine block is basically ready to blow up. So um, <coughs> at the time, uh, of course, we just really couldn't diagnose necessarily right off the bat what was causing this to happen. Uh, but this, th this, we'll call this uh, diesel van, we'll say it's, it's in something called D-rate at this time, uh, back then, so a year ago. <laughs> But uh, when these things are in D-rate, it gives you a certain amount of mileage that you can use at 65 miles an hour as a top speed. And if you go past that mileage, it goes down to 55 miles an hour. And if you keep on going past that mileage, it'll kick you down to four miles an hour. And unless it sees that the problem is fixed with the engine, it will just leave you at that point and not allow it to go up. You can't clear the code. There's nothing you can really do unless you actually fix the problem. So. My boss told me that I'd be driving this van back no matter what, didn't really have a choice. And from the amount of mileage I was telling him was on the dash before I'd be kicked down to four miles an hour, our rough distance to get to from Johnson, Rhode Island, now back to Old Lyme, I would be kicked down to four miles an hour as I was hitting the I-95 ramp from 395. Um, so it can be kind of sketchy, especially since this is at nighttime, there's a lot of heavy haulers on the road. And there was a point where I almost had a collision with a car hauler. Couldn't really speed up, couldn't really brake. It was kind of stuck. Oh, it was a headache. <laughs> but I remember I was just getting to a point where I was overwhelmed. I felt very discouraged. I feel like I just wasn't, I wasn't happy with my situation. I was very uh, overstressed, overwhelmed, and felt very disappointed that I couldn't figure out this problem. Uh, at the same time, you have, you know, work in the same year, which is just causing even more, you know, anxiety, more stress, uh, trying to get it right, but no matter what you do, even though you're trying your hardest, you're still being attacked. So at that point, I remember, I still remember, mile mark 18, I-395 southbound, was towards 8 o'clock at night. Uh, this was now going on a 14-hour shift, and <coughs> I remember... When I was going down the exit, I remember I was staring soullessly at the highway, just straight, like, just dead man stare. And it was to a point where I felt discouraged, but I also tried, you know, I've always had this relationship with God, but I think now more than ever because of this, this is a really good highlight for me to really build my relationship with him. So... <clears throat> I always, I always knew God was there. Always knew He was with me. I felt more like at this time, maybe He was, you know, maybe He was testing me. Maybe He was trying to see, you know, my limit before He would, you know, help me out in my situation. And at this point, heavy anxiety behind the wheel. I know I'm going to be hitting four miles an hour as soon as I hit I-95. And I knew that, you know, this thing, this van didn't really have good lighting whatsoever either. This thing, you know, needed light bulbs all around, all that, you know, 
you see those cars on the road. <laughs> but, <laughs> so uh, during that time, I made a prayer out to God, and this is a little bit paraphrased, but I started off by you know saying, Father, thank you for another day. I'm grateful to be alive. I'm grateful for that today. Just something simple as I'm grateful today was at least a sunny day because, you know, maybe I can enjoy this right now, but I know it can get worse throughout the day. I'm going to enjoy this right now. Thank you. And <clears throat> I told him, I knew I'm in a bad situation right now. Please just, if you're listening, please just help. I have no clue what to do. I'm running lost. I feel absent. I feel like missing. I feel like I'm gone. I feel like I'm lost. And <clears throat> I said, I don't even know if I'm going to make it back to the shop. So I would like to ask for your help. And after that, I remember, so again, staring solace at the highway, uh, very just overwhelmed with everything going on, plus, you know, just everything else going on in life as well. And <clears throat> I kid you not, not even 15 seconds after calling out that prayer, finishing that prayer. If, keep in mind, all these lights on the dashboard are on. This thing's making, this thing's shaking. This thing is ready to freaking fall apart. <laughs> it is bad. So the, you have smoke bellowing out the tailpipe. It's all oil vapor. You can feel this engine's just running very rugged. It's not really, it's not necessarily running smooth by any means. Um, at this point, all of a sudden, I'm stuck at 55. My foot's to the floor because I'm really hoping that would do something. And, you know, obviously, you know, when these things are limited to 55 miles an hour, you're not going to get it past it. But, you know, I, I remember I was on mile mark 18. And all of a sudden, the engine just screamed to life. The lights on the dash all disappeared. And I looked at, I'm looking at the tail end thinking that, like, it's got to be dumping smoke. The smoke is fading out and disappearing. Engine start idling back smooth and all the things it was doing just disappeared back up to 65 miles an hour past 65 miles an hour we're good it's out of d rate it's safe it's run it's running smooth now drive all the way back down to the shop uh <laughs> but uh, it's at that point you realize that you have god's undivided attention and when you have that feeling there's nothing that gives you more goosebumps more like it it sends chills down your spine and what happened to me there was, you know, I, I was laughing hysterically behind the wheel. I was breaking down. I was crying behind the wheel. But <laughs> I was just, I was gone. I, I felt like I almost needed to pull over. I'm like, no, I'm not even risking that. <laughs> I am getting to the shop right now. But, yeah, so I remember uh, throughout all this, I knew God wanted me to do something. I felt, if you're going to do a miracle like that, there's got to be something you need me to see. There's got to be something that you have planned for me. There's got to be something I'm not seeing because, you know, I'm, I'm a human being. We, we're blind to seeing the big picture a lot of the time. And uh, at this point, uh, <laughs> I remember, you know what? I'm going to go back to church. I, I, I want to figure out more of what's going on. I know I have a mission here. There's got to be something that I can do as a favor for him or there's got to be something he needs me to do because when it's something that highlighted and that clear, you want to ask, you know, what can I do? And the problem is you don't necessarily always get a response right off the bat. So it's something that you got to explore. It's your mission throughout your life. And I remember I walked in the church and th at this time, the last time I came to church, I must have been probably like 230 pounds, something like that. And I remember uh, it was Pastor Keith and Pastor Ryan. I remember seeing them in the back room and I could hear him whispering, like, is that, is that Josh? 
<laughs> it's like down to like 180 now. It's like, is that John? I, I think so. Is that? Yeah, yeah, I think it is. So <laughs> then uh, Pastor Keith uh, approached me, and, you know, I said, yeah, well, you know, I wanted to get back into the church, and I, you know, I really felt like something strong happened in my life, and I wanted to, I then met Pastor Ryan then came up, and I told him right off the bat, you know, I want to become a member. And <laughs> he just looked at me like, what? He's like, haven't been here 15 minutes. I want to become a member again, <laughs> please. <laughs> but <laughs> from there, you know, ever since then, I, that's when I started coming back, which was uh, basically right around Christmas time last year. And now, you know, obviously uh, a member again with the church. And um, there was a point where I decided, you know what? I got to start putting more trust in Jesus like this because I worry, I see I've been diagnosed with anxiety disorder, panic disorder, depression disorder, everything, you know, the whole nine yards. <laughs> but the thing is that I have, basically, doctors have prescribed me medication for the past 13 years. Um, <clears throat> in this case, um, with anxiety, and anyone that has anxiety here already knows this feeling, it feels like chains, it feels like shackles, and it is, it's kind of like its own brutal, like, its own personality. And no matter what you do, no matter where you go, you can't seem to outrun it. It's always going to find you. And I decided I have a lot of worries. I have a lot of panic. I got to start putting more trust into Jesus because it comes to a point where you know you don't necessarily have control of any of this, but there is one person that does. So you might as well start investing some trust into him, build your relationship with him. Since then, one goal I did have is I did want to get off my anxiety medications uh, prescribed by my doctor, and I felt very, very overwhelmed with the concept of trying to, but I also felt like because I know God is really present in my life, I do believe that this is even, this is worth a shot. So uh, I've put more faith in Jesus uh, I, than I believe I ever really have in the past year. Uh, and I put a lot more trust within him as well. Uh, and basically after 13 years, uh, I've been taking medication to treat uh, for anxiety. And uh, basically as of October 1st, uh, I haven't needed any psychiatric medications for anxiety disorder. I've now gone completely clear of it for thir uh, after 13 years. October 1st is the first mark of no longer needing to take it. Which, thank you, <laughs> it was great. And honestly, I wish everyone here, and I hope that everyone here that has anxiety disorder, I hope someday you can overcome your anxiety as well. I know it is not necessarily easy, especially kids that go to, are currently in school as well. It's n it can be very difficult, and you have more stress in your life than many people really have. School, it's usually, you know, I feel like ages 20 to 40, those are like the peak levels of anxiety throughout life. Uh, but then again, I could be absolutely wrong. <laughs> so, uh, but yeah, so, uh, like I said, uh, I've used them for years, but like, the psychiatric medications for years, but uh, <clears throat> I'm not saying necessarily everyone should, you know, be on psychiatric meds or, you know, get off of your meds and nothing like that, but uh, they do have their place. And for me, I feel like I, I did absolutely need them for my life, uh, for the first, you know, those 13 years, but after, with life experience, putting trust in God, putting more faith into my religion, uh, 
trying to find out more about what God wants me to do, I could feel more confidence throughout my life. And the more confidence I built, the less anxiety had cracks to creep through to try to make it into my life again. And to this day, I'm not saying I'm anxiety-free by any means. It's just that I am now at a point where I feel I can actually push through. Like, getting up here today, obviously some people here may have stage fright, may not, who knows, maybe it's just me. <laughs> but the thing is that I, I do understand that aspect as well. Like, me, anxiety, that was a big thing for me. I couldn't even leave my house at one point in my life where, I, you know, if I did, it was just basically gagging, throwing up, trying to try to leave the house because your heart's racing so fast and you can't breathe. And, uh, but yeah, so now uh, I'm thankful that, you know, my faith uh, has grown over the last year, uh, that the fact that I haven't needed them like I used to, which is, you know, it, it really is a blessing in itself. Um, but I do pray uh, that we may, actually, I'm going to do a quick prayer before it closes as well because, you know, I know a lot of people are suffering anxiety and I really hope that God hears you today. Um, but yeah, so uh, I've thrown uh, many of my worries, many of my fears, uh, trust into Jesus that he may divide the weight. Uh, Pastor Ryan's talked before about the uh, two ox and the yoke. Um, and one thing I've always liked to, with Jesus, I've always talked to him about in stressful situations is I ask him uh, if he may be able to get in that yoke with me. And it's, it's impressive. Something as simple as a prayer like that, and you do actually notice things changing. And it's for the better. Uh, but, yeah, so uh, if there's any battles you're currently fighting that may be overwhelming you as well, um, I do hope you may take this as maybe like a stepping stone into having Jesus be that second ox and that yoke with you. Um, yeah, let's, I say let's pray real quick. Father, we thank you for this day. We thank you for this Sunday. Uh, thank you for gathering us all here. And the fact that we're all under this roof today, there's definitely things you want us to all hear. Uh, we thank you for uh, St. Paul's Church for helping us host this so we can spread our stories and also give this experience to others that may need the information, Lord. We thank you for being in our daily life. We thank you for being in our weekly life. And please help us, those battling anxiety or panic, uh, anything overwhelming in their life, help them give them a sign to what they need to see this week, Lord. Help them Help guide them to what you need them to do. Make it highlighted because we need it, Lord. Thank you, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you, Josh. And uh, we've got one more. Uh, Keith Ryan. Hopefully most of you know Keith. And uh, sometimes people get confused when I refer to Keith Ryan, because, you know, for obvious reasons. Um, <laughs> but, uh, yeah, thank you for being willing to share, Keith. All right. Good morning. Um, so, yeah, so I came in, the, came in this church about five years ago, maybe. Um, a friend of mine was coming here, and she kind of brought me in. I was looking for a church, and um, then she... Invite, uh, introduced me to Pastor Ryan and Pastor Keith, and it was kind of, kind of cool. It was kind of I felt like I belong here after, after that, you know. And um, so Pastor Ryan asked me to speak about a month or so ago, and I said yeah right away because I knew if I had 
any time to think about it, I would have made some excuse or anything to not do this. Um, so, you know, I kind of, I wasn't sure if, you know, this was too much or was it not enough or I, I wasn't really sure what to, what to write down. Um, so I wrote down a little bit about where I came from and uh, my up, upcoming in life and the neighborhood I grew up in and kind of how I fell off life for a while and um, got in some trouble and then at the end, just kind of talking about how God helped me change my life around and how my life is today. Um, so, uh, I was born and raised in Boston in the projects, uh, a little town called Charlestown. Um, I, I have two sisters and a brother. Um, I, one of the, my brother and sister are uh, nine and ten years older than me. Uh, my parents were divorced before I was born. Um, so I always felt like a, a mistake child, um, you know. Um, so, you know, growing up, I remember as a little kid, my brother was very violent. He was very just um, controlling. And I remember as a young kid, I was maybe, you know, five, six, seven years old or younger. Uh, my brother used to, uh, you know, hit my mother and beat up my older sister all the time. And I would be... Um, when I knew my brother and sister would be in the house together, um, I would end up shaking so bad and uh, so scared. And I used to always have to run in the room at that young age, lock my mother's door when they were fighting and breaking things and, and calling 911. And um, I was always a very uh, scared, um, quiet, shy person. Um, you know, and I, I just remember those young days um, growing up and how violent it was in my in my household. Uh, my mother had a couple of different boyfriends who were just very violent and loud and yelling. And um, I was just always just scared to be in the household. Um, and <clears throat> it was just scary, you know, knowing that my brother and sister, you know, on holidays or anything, fights were going to break out, people yelling and screaming, and I was always the one in the room scared. Um, you know, and I, you know, I don't miss those days at all. Um, and then I also have a little sister uh, who was two years younger who had a different dad than me. And um, we would be always in the room where everybody was fighting and stuff. So, um, you know, I, I'm grateful I don't have to live like that anymore. And I remember, you know, alcohol kind of... Uh, Every, I have a lot of alcoholics in my family. Um, a couple uncles who I kind of looked up to. You know, like I said, I was always quiet and shy. And then when I had m my two uncles come over for holidays or for any parties, I always looked up to them. They were always like the life of the party. So I kind of wanted to be like them. And I didn't realize how much uh, alcoholics they were. And, you know, growing up later on in life, you know, I started, I started drinking and drugging at an early age. Um, about 14, um, I started, you know, doing drugs and started drinking and experimenting with different, with the anything really. Um, and, <clears throat> you know, I ended up being like my uncles, um, you know, except, you know, I, I, I just, you know, I just celebrated nine and a half years of sobriety. And, um, you know, it's, and it's pretty amazing from where I came from. Um, Sorry, I'm kind of jumping around. I keep trying to find my place, but uh, um, 
you know, with the drinking and drugging, you know, I ended up getting expelled from school in the 10th grade. Um, I was just in a lot of trouble. Um, my dad, after getting kicked out of school, I didn't want to go back to school the next year. So my, my dad ended up kicking me out of the house. Um, so my, like I said, my mom and dad were divorced before I was born. So my mom was the easy one. I could, uh, in the projects, I could pretty much do what I wanted. She really had no control over me and my little sister. Um, so my dad kicked me out. You know, I was, got kicked out in the 10th grade. I never went back to school. Um, I ended up running the, the streets in, in Boston. Um, and it, that's just what I wanted to do. That's how I was living life. My friends were doing the same thing. Um, you know, at 18 years old, I got into a, a lot of trouble. I ended up going to prison for a couple years at an early age. Uh, you know, I thought when I got out of prison, I thought I would, um, you know, help change my life around and, you know, I'd start doing better. Uh, that's what I told my parents, and that's actually what I thought, you know. But eventually I just got out of, got out a couple years later, and I just ended up staying in the same neighborhood, hanging with the same kids. Um, and, you know, I continued with the drinking and addiction problems, um, in and out of trouble constantly, breaking all my family members' hearts. Um, they wanted me to do good, and they all tried to help me, and I just didn't want any help. I just wanted to kind of live my life and run the show myself. And uh, that put me in a lot of trouble. You know, I started, you know, robbing at an early age. I would steal from family members. I was fighting. I was running the projects, doing what I wanted. Anything I had to do to feed my addiction. Um, I went in and out of prisons for years after that. It was like the rotating door. I could just never get it. Um, and I became a, a full-blown alcoholic, a blackout, you know. You know, it's a little embarrassing, but I was like a pee in my pants every single night. I'd black out, drink so much, and wake up and be all soaking wet. It was just an embarrassment. Um, and, you know, I look back now, and it's like, wow, I'm so grateful. I don't have to go through that. Um, you know, I couldn't hold a job for very long. Um, everything revolved around alcohol. None of my, you know, later on... Um, alcohol just had me people didn't want to be around me family members didn't want to be around me uh, friends kind of went away I, I was uh, all by myself with me and my alcohol and that's all I really cared about uh, most of my 20s were lost to prisons drugs alcohol um, I didn't I didn't like life you know I didn't want to be here so I kind of drank as much as I can to to try to forget about it um, and I, at the age of 29, I had um, kind of a life-changing situation. You know, I used to drink in the woods by myself. Um, so nobody could bother me. Nobody knew where I was. And there was two kids who kind of came up. I seen walking through the woods. And I was just ready to start drinking with them. I had a bunch of alcohol. I had, you know, whatever else I had. And eventually they wanted something else. I... Um, they came up to me and told me to give me their money, give me the, um, give them my money. They were trying to rob me, and I just kind of laughed. And um, a kid hit me, so I started fighting with him. And um, <coughs> I started fighting with him. I seen his friend had a baseball bat, uh, and I was tangled up fighting with the first kid. And I seen the the other kids um, 
take a full swing of his baseball bat and sma smash me in the back of the head. And, um, you know, I fell down. I knew if I didn't get right up, it would just be worse. So I, I jumped up. Luckily, the kids, kids ran away. Um, my, you know, the first thing when I got up as I cared about was I ran and grabbed my alcohol from the bushes it was in. Uh, my head was swollen. Um, you know, I, I just got kicked out of a girlfriend's house a few days before because she couldn't handle my drinking. Um, so I was staying with my stepsister. Um, so I picked up my alcohol. I walked home holding my head. I had a pounding headache. Um, my head was swollen. And, um, you know, I, I went to my sister's. It was, it was late. So everybody was sleeping. And I continued to drink. And... I couldn't sleep. My headache was so bad. And my sister, stepsister, came in the next morning. She would always come in and kind of check up on me because I was always doing something, getting into fights or, you know, bleeding or, or just something was wrong. So she would always check in on me first thing in the morning. Um, so she got up and I couldn't sleep. And she said, we, what happened? We got to rush you to the emergency room. And um, I said, no, nah, I'll be all right. You know, I'll just put some ice on it, you know, I grabbed like a frozen thing of peas and threw it on top of my head. And, um, you know, I'm lucky she was there and I was, you know, I was in that house because the doctor said if I fell asleep that night, I wouldn't have woken up. And uh, so we went to the emergency room. Uh, the doctors took, took x-rays. Um, he came running in after and said, we got to rush you to Mass General Hospital. This all happened in Boston. Um, and um, I had a cracked skull, I had bleeding in my brain, I had a fractured jaw, and they needed to drain my, my head and get the swelling down. So they called the ambulance and rushed me to Mass General Hospital. Um, they put me right into surgery. You know, I, I wasn't drinking. I would always have to drink every morning or I'd get the DTs and start shaking and stuff. So I was going through DTs, and then they went and did the emergency brain surgery. And... Um, and, you know, I died on the operating table. They had to go to Plan B to bring me back. <coughs> and, um, you know, that, that, you know the, right now I could say that was like the best thing that ever happened to me and, you know, also the worst because if that didn't happen to me, I would have still been in Boston and I would have never changed my life and find a higher power who I call God today. Um, so after that happened, you know, I had to learn how to walk again. I couldn't walk. Um, I had a, a tough time kind of recovering from that. My sister who lived in Connecticut, she moved with her husband in Connecticut and her two kids. Um, she knew, you know, me and her always had a real tight relationship and she knew she had to get me out of Boston if I ever wanted to have a chance at life. And for some reason, I don't know if it was a spiritual something, God was looking over me. Um, and I told her I would, you know, go with her and her husband. Um, to Connecticut and she wanted to help take care of me and help me recover and I knew if I if I said no and stayed in Boston I don't know where I would be um, today um, so her she took me in um, you know I, I lost my license for about 15 years um, from the past all the trouble I was getting in um, you know I had no money I had no license I had no clothes I had no nothing they took me in like I was their own child and um, 
and it was a big change you know it was in columbia connecticut you know out in the woods from from boston and the projects you know took me a while to get used to it. and it, it was you know i'd see bunnies and deers running around and you know we've never seen that out out in boston um so you know i i i had to recover i had to learn how to walk a lot of therapy um you know and for a while when that first happened i moved to columbia out in connecticut i I really resented God because I I didn't want to live um, uh, most of my life, and that's why I did you know lived the way I did. And um, I just that was my perfect way out of this life, you know. Getting hit with baseball bat, brain surgery, just let me go. But He kept me here, and you know, for a while um, after I was able to walk again, I was finding ways to get alcohol. You know, even with no car in Columbia on a dead-end street, I would find ways to get alcohol. And I thought I was hiding it in the room, and my sister and her husband and my nephew, they didn't know. But, of course, they knew. And um, a few times I got drank a little too much. And finally they gave me the ultimatum of, of um, you know, they'd say, they said, you know, we brought you here to give you a chance at life and to help you help you grow and have a good life. And... You know, you're not doing that, and you're drinking, and so we're either going to buy you a bus ticket back to Boston, or you have to do something and get into recovery. Um, so I thought about it again, and I just knew I couldn't go back to Boston to that life. Um, so one, you know, we talked about, um, you know, I'm in a 12-step program, um, you know, like Betty mentioned, um, I go to Alcoholics Anonymous. I've been going for over nine and a half years now. And f so I said, yeah, I'd, I'll go into recovery. I'll, I'll try it. I just wanted to get her off my back and just, I never expected never to drink again or do drugs again. I don't think I was thinking that. But um, So I went to my first meeting. You know, I didn't have a car, so she drove me to the first meeting in Bolton Friday night. Um, and, you know, I was nervous, of course. I had no idea. None of my family members ever went to AA or anything like that. So I walked in. People were super nice to me. Um, they welcomed me. And they always say, you know, the meeting's all about you, the newcomer. And um, so they just, they let me talk. You know, it's the first time I really opened up to people and uh, told people my feelings. Um, and that was a little scary, but, you know, I did it and... and um, they, I remember they passed around a little schedule book that all the, has all the meetings and the times and stuff, and they all put their numbers on the back of it, and I still have that book. And so after the meeting, we all went out. I talked with the guys right outside. I'll, I'll, you know, they were smoking, and I never smoked, but you know, I was talking with them and talking to me about the program and stuff. And, um, and Eventually, my sister was still over there. I told her to stay in the parking lot because I didn't know if I was just going to run out of this place. And just, you know, I had no idea what it was about. So she said, um, after that meeting, I, I opened the door to get back in. And she said there was like a glow to me that she'd never seen in me before. And um, that was like the, the, the start of my journey now, my, my life. Um, so... The next morning, you know, the guy said, you know, call us. We'll give you a ride the next day. So I got the schedule book, and I just randomly called some guy. I didn't even know what face or who it was I was calling. Um, but I asked him if he can get, give me a ride to the meeting the next day. And he was at my house, you know, a few hours later to pick me up. We went to another meeting in Andover. 
And um, so I, I continued doing that. And I don't know what it was to get me out of my shell because I would never pick up the phone, never talk to people. I didn't know how to talk. I was so scared. You know, um, they talked about anxiety. And um, you know, I, I suffer with anxiety and depression a lot. And I just kept picking up the phone and making phone calls. And then finally, you know, in the program, you got to kind of find a sponsor and somebody um, to help you kind of go through the steps and help change your whole life. And I seen a guy, an older guy. I just liked how he lived life. I, he was very spiritual, very into prayer and meditation, and I liked that. Um, so I asked him to be my sponsor one day. And I didn't know that he was an ex-pastor of a church, and he... Um, and he, he was, like I said, very big into prayer, meditation, and he started giving me rides, and um, he helped me get through the steps. And, you know, part of it is, you know, getting, figuring out why you drank so much and kind of um, just helping yourself figure out, you know, how to get better and stuff. So, you know, I started the step work, and we would always pray. He would always pray, and we would always meditate before we started reading um, a couple different books. And... Um, you know, it's it's about a, like a cleansing inside and um, <coughs> helping you get over, you know, the things that made you drink all the time and drug and live like you did before. And um, so just kind of jumping ahead. Um, so one of the steps is about um, making an amends to people um, that you hurt while you were in your, in my bad days, you know, my drinking days. And um, one, of the one of them were, my first one was to my sister. She obviously knew I was going to AA. My life was changing. You know, I was on like a pink cloud. I was so happy. And, you know, I'd run in the house and tell her, oh, I got all these friends and people want to pick me up and people want me around. Because at the end of my drinking, nobody wanted me around. And um, so I knew I was going to make an amends to her. And, you know, it was, we, I took her out to lunch at Friendly's in Willimantic that's not there anymore. And, um, she she knew something was coming, and, you know, I was so nervous to do this. You know, I ran in and out of the bathroom like three times, praying to God that I would do this. And um, so finally I came out, and I said, you know, Maureen, this is the time of um, step, you know, in my recovery where I have to start making amends for the bad things I did in life. And I just told her, you know, I'm sorry that I was a bad brother. And, you know, she had two kids, and they seen me fighting and yelling and screaming and a few times, and... You know, I stole from her during my addiction, and, um, you know, she said, you know, I got halfway through that, and she said, you know, stop talking. You don't have to say anymore. This is exactly why we brought you to Connecticut, to help you, help give you a chance at life. And, um, you know, I was crying. She was crying. Then the waitress came over and said, are you guys okay? We said, yeah, yeah, we're good. And um, it was like just a special, special time. And then, you know, I've done a lot of amends to family members that I've hurt. And um, another one, you know, now, you know, my dad's suffering with Alzheimer's and um, he has a lot of health issues and he's on like the last stage. He doesn't remember who I am anymore. He has a tough time talking. Um, and um, so I got to make an amends with him before his Alzheimer's and he got to see his, you know, I'm his youngest. He got to see his little boy finally live life without uh, drugs and alcohol and everything like that and um, I'm just grateful I got you know I told him I was about you know sorry for being a bad son and doing everything I did um, to worry him all the time and um, so I got to do, do that with him before um, his Alzheimer's kicked in and 
but now I'm, I'm grateful because I could be there for my dad today. And it's part of what the program does is um, kind of help change your life and give you a chance to, um, to, to be there for people who I've hurt in the past and let them all kind of see me grow. And um, should I wrap it up? I'm sorry. Oh. Uh, <laughs> um, so, you know, I get to be there for my dad. You know, he fell down the other day a couple nights ago and hit his head and he was back in the hospital. He's been in and out of the hospital less year or two or so and um you know he's not doing good at all but um I, i'm just grateful i could be there for him today and that's what the program has done and like i said i got almost 10 years of sobriety coming up and i never thought that would ever happen um and it's great that you know i sponsor people in aa i go to aa meetings every day um it's changed my life for the better you know i found a higher power um, you know, one thing my sponsor told me when I first met him is start, you know, find a higher power. And I didn't have a problem with God being my higher power. I never went to a church before. I never had anything to do with God. And um, so I, he said, you know, when you get out of bed, you know, make your bed and get on your knees and ask God to help you get through a so another sober day. And, um, you know, he said, you know, and start praying for other people. Um, and now I like I care less about myself and more about other people and before it was all I just cared about me I didn't really care about nobody else. I did what I had to do to anybody to get what I wanted now I like helping people out and um, And I just you know, I care for people and I want to be there to help other people um, so um, You know now I just I just stay grateful and it's awesome that you know I have real friends in my life today people who look out for me and I could help them out when they need help and um i'm just uh i'm just very grateful to have god in my life today and, and my sponsor also said you know get on your knees at night before you get into bed and say a prayer and say thank you for keeping you away from a drink and a drug and uh, that you don't have to live that that negative lifestyle anymore and um you know i just and i love uh, helping people and walking them through the steps like my sponsor did me and watching them grow and see the light go on in their life getting family members back in their life and kids back in their life and jobs and everything like that. And uh, it's something that I never thought I would ever do before is really help anybody else. And, you know, now I just, you know, I pray every day still to God. And, you know, I, I come to church and I have a small church um, group of guys we go out to breakfast with. I started doing a Bible study with Pastor Ryan. And I would tell my parents these things and I'm like, who is this kid? Um, but you know my my parents are just proud of me today and I never gave my parents any reason to be proud of me my whole life until you know I got sober and started doing the right thing and um, so I'm just like I said I just stay grateful you know I, I still have my days you know depression a little bit and anxiety a little bit but that really just kind of all went away too um, when I started working on myself and finding more getting more confidence and stuff so um that's about all I've got. Um, I'm grateful that you asked me to speak, and um, life is good today, so thank you guys. Thank you so much, Keith. And um, let's give a round of applause for everybody. Um, Those were amazing testimonies. And again, I really appreciate everybody's vulnerability in sharing. Um, so 
I know we've gone a little long this morning. That is usually what happens on Thanksgiving Sunday, so I, I hope that's okay. Um, and, you know, there's a little, uh, sometimes there might be kind of a temptation to say, okay, we went long, so let's just, let's just say the benediction and head out. Do we have to do communion every single Sunday? And not, ev- not all churches do it every Sunday, right? Um, but I have never been to a service at St. Paul's where we have not taken communion. We have a very high value of this because we see this as the pinnacle, the climax of every service, uh, where we recognize um, that Christ gave all so that the forces of sin, death, and the devil could be conquered, and we have the opportunity to receive that. And we never want to go through a service without making that clear. (laughs) Um, So, uh, one way that I would like you to think about communion today, maybe a little bit different, than usual, is, I mean, you just heard these great stories, um, some of them very dramatic, right? All of them very dramatic, really. I know even though you tried to play yours down, Andrea, I I thought it was still quite dramatic. Um, There might be a feeling of, like, well, I don't have a story like that. Well, first of all, you might, even though you haven't recognized it. Um, But second of all, whatever your story has been, it's important for you to recognize that the gift of God is for you too, right? It's, it's not just for the people that got up here and shared today. It's for everyone here. And so right now you are welcome to come and receive the gift of God's grace, um, of his life. Um, and you have an opportunity to express that you want to receive that and do that right here and now. So I think most of you know the drill, so I'm not going to repeat it. (laughs) Um, But I'd like to invite us all to stand right now. On the night that Jesus was betrayed, he took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it. And he said, this is my body given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after supper, he took the cup. And he said, this is the new covenant in my blood. Do this in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and you drink this cup, you declare the Lord's death until he comes again. So as you feel called and as you feel ready, come and receive God's holy gifts for God's beloved people.